You're listening to A Little Too Quiet. This is Jeff just checking in to let you know that you're about to listen to an episode in which our hosts, including Roddy and Mary Graham and myself, welcomed Daniel and Abby from Save Me From My Shelf, which is a literature podcast in which they take classic literature off its pedestal by making fun of it just to make it a little less intimidating. And we go from there and we have three books to talk about today. We're going to be talking about Hamlet, Lolita, and The Picture of Dorian Gray, but not in that order. I just wanted to lay that table setting out right now because we're a little admittedly understandably giddy when we first welcome our guests via zoom who are joining us from across an ocean i mean i feel like the general vibe of this podcast is that none of us can be held responsible so We just run off of vibes, mostly. No real script. Except for the intro, if we ever let Jeff get to it. Which sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's like the Good Omens episode three, like 30 minute cold open. Like you're halfway through the episode and then you get the intro music. So. I'm I'm waiting to do it. I, I could do it right now. How how is everything over on your side of the the pond? Good. I mean, how are you guys? Are you getting the air pollution situation? Yeah, we sure are. Roddy, I bet you thought you'd escaped it. Oh, it's so funny. I'm from Los Angeles, so we have a fire season. Um, Mm -hmm. And I like I was driving into work yesterday, and I was like, "Wow, it really looks like home." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I raised my blinds yesterday, and I was like, "Oh, the sun is a." It's not supposed to be that shade of red. That's bad. <laughs> I like kind of tilted my head and I was like, why does this look so familiar? And I was like, oh, something's on fire. I know this. <laughs> I know this feeling. Something's definitely on fire. It looks like mortar outside. <laughs> Something oh. is burning. <laughs> and yet I did. Yeah. I did simply walk into work today. I thought you weren't supposed to be able to do that in Mordor. <laughs> We're talking about the orcs work all the time. That's all they do. <laughs> One does not simply commute, is that what you mean? Right, yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. Well, I have to admit, I barely finished Dorian Gray an hour ago. This is the most insufferable reread of my life. Yeah, Roddy's <laughs> texting me this morning. She's like, I'm listening to it on two times speed. Um, <laughs> we're gonna, oh, you're going to be in a real weird headspace for this. We're going to have <laughs> so much fun, because I have my own opinions about Dorian Gray and how long that book should be. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Much, much longer is the impression <laughs> I'm getting. Uh, whichever one is shorter, actually, I'm like, hmm, w- Wilde has his talents. He does. Um, but I think in the case of fiction, prose writing for him, the shorter, the better. Because I ended up reading, I took out our copy that we have here at the library, and we have the annotated, unexpurgated version of what was serialized in the American magazines. Um, And so it's not even what was published. It was the typescript that Wilde presented, which means it is the gayest version possible, which is the version I wanted to read. Um, But it's also also on the short side, because when I first read Dorian Gray, I listened to the Michael Sheen audiobook, which was really good. And then when I went back to, to listen to it again for this, I realized it's marked as abridged. And I was like, Michael, how have you thus betrayed me? And then I got a, f- a full edition 
um, of the, the full like novel length version and I couldn't get through it. I was like, why? Why is I mean, Roddy's right. It was already somewhat insufferable, but like affectionate for me. And then I was like, well, now this is insufferable derogatory. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. I gave up and I got the print version from work and I was like, oh, I think you shouldn't have added chapters, Oscar. I think you were fine. Um, but that's a, that's a hot take. That's yeah. a wild take. That's yep. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, you're listening to A Little Too Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library podcast, and it's brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. And we have two very special guests. It's Abby and Daniel from Save Me From My Shelf. Woohoo! Woo-hoo. Uh, <laughs> we have to insert applause or something there, Jess. Yes, <laughs> of course. Mary Graham, take it away. Uh, so great books curriculum over there is Roddy. Hi. And uh, I watch period dramas in order to critique the attire of the clergy over there is Mary Graham. Hi. <laughs> and uh, for God's sake, give this man a raise over here is Jeff. Thank you so much. Could you just say hello to our listeners out there, the two of you, and maybe give... I'll softball it into you. Yeah, because I, uh, I normally come up with these off the cuff. I plan It's kind of about a half an hour between um, yeah. Abby saying it and me coming up with the repost. <laughs> let's, let's see. It's pretty bad. Hi, everybody. Uh, Buckingham Palace over here is Daniel. Right, well, that's too easy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, what's, what's, hey, fine. The, pres- the presidential palace or mansion? Or what do you have over there? I don't know. Okay. Okay, this is this. I was is thinking of like uh, Kazakhstan or something. Do, do we need to do another one? Yeah, go on, do another one. Okay. Hi, guys. Office Dyke over here is Daniel. That's more like it. <laughs> Build the wall. <laughs> is that me? It's very similar. King Offer and, and Donald Trump, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> That's terrific. Thank you so much for joining us uh, virtually from across an ocean. Yeah, thank you for having us. It's uh, it's rare that we think Birmingham is the city to be, but it sounds like you guys are going through it right now with your uh, your air quality. So we're joining you from beautiful Birmingham, England. <laughs> yes. Did did we make the news? Detroit is now the second worst city in the world for air quality. Is it really? Second worst. Right. Wow. And considering the last time Not I was in close. London, I did blow my nose and soot came out. Like, that is concerning. <laughs> so... Wow, I'm going to have to stare into the middle distance about that for a little while. <laughs> yeah. So is it foggy over there? No, it's a beautiful summer okay. day. Okay. <laughs> We've switched climates. <laughs> yeah, wait, wait, yeah, which city is the worst? Because are you guys not upset that you're still like number two? Do you not oh, even New like, York is currently the worst. New York last is currently the worst. But, like, so much of the story of Detroit is like, can someone else be in a worse position than we are? And can it please be somewhere in Ohio? That's um, right. <laughs> always so, rooting against um, Ohio. Always rooting yeah. against Ohio. It's Pictures of New York currently look like a sepia tone filter has been placed over them. I uh, mean, so. it looks like like the old London. I mean, it's very T.S. Eliot, you know, the yellow fog creeping under the... I was trying to get to that reference. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, the black yellow cat, it's curled up like a cat, but like probably a cat that doesn't smell very good. <laughs> I'm sure that that's in Proof Rock somewhere. Not no? Right, right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so. All the good cats. <laughs> Daniel made me watch the new Cats oh, adaptation about no. what, a year and a half ago. Oh so, no. Um, yeah, it's Elliot though as well. Yeah, yes, I, I yeah, know. But, but. Yeah, literary reference here. 
I have avoided all things cats like the plague. I only listened to the song Memory in Full for the first time a month or two ago. So Roddy, I'm so um, proud of you. Yeah. That's that's my friends went through a really bad cats phase and I just refuse to have anything to do with it. So that's a level of pop culture resistance that I feel about Game of Thrones. I've never seen a single episode of Game of Thrones and I neither. I feel fine about that. Actually. Oh, wait, that's a lie. Okay, I have to I have to moderate. So, <laughs> this is a podcast that was started inside of a library, and initially the goal was maybe to have each episode be uh, documenting um, ways in which uh, people people's perception of a library might not be. Um, completely full uh, they might not fully understand everything we do they might not understand who we are as library staff but then it then mary graham and roddy came along and it started becoming very much a literary podcast and and now and then and then we found you guys and we're like oh my gosh what a great <laughs> podcast uh i can't believe i fangirled a podcast so hard that i willed a crossover into existence yeah you like, kind of did putting yeah. that on my resume from now on because it truly did happen as was described in the emails to y'all of like me texting roddy being like you need this podcast and then both of us bothering jeff they took over my show and they we did take over your show and now the running now the running joke is like you can't leave roddy and i alone without a microphone in front of us because we'll just come up with like three more podcast episodes yeah and (laughs) so they're they are the professionals here i'm just here to to moderate move things along and then uh could you give everyone this beautiful tagline that you have for your podcast this whole taking things off the pedestal etc describe your podcast to folks who might not be familiar so we are two english literature academics uh which means we are a blast at parties and we have started this podcast to sort of take literature off its pedestal you know if, if you're a little bit intimidated by classic lit we recap it, we ridicule it, and then we analyze it just to make it a little bit more accessible to people who otherwise might not pick up these sort of heavy, intimidating tones. You got anything else to add over there, Stretch? I'm just here to, you know, I'm a sounding board, really, aren't I? I think, you know. But yeah, the, the podcast is called Save Me From My Shelf. I probably should have mentioned that. That's okay. We will be promoting the hell out of it. Uh, before we get started, I have to know, is that tea in your mugs? Because we are at work, we're going to say yes. Ah, okay. All right. Nice. Uh, can we uh, just, just discuss a bit a bit, maybe about what inspired the three titles we're discussing today, which include Hamlet by, what's the name again? Uh, Bill? Bill. Billy Shakes. Billy Shakes? Billy Shakes uh, from Warwickshire. He didn't even know his own name, did he? Certainly he did <laughs> yeah. not have a decided way to spell it. The yeah. Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Lolita by Vlad Nabokov or Nabokov. Uh, those are the three titles we're going to dig into today. Uh, Abby, I think even you proposed these, or maybe you both did. Can you explain yourselves? Well, you had sort of come up with a, a good thesis that we wanted to talk about literary, sort of playfully literary weirdos. Yeah. And mm-hmm. of, of the sort of episodes we've done in the past those were the three that really jumped out of authors <laughs> just having a grand old time or kind of a miserable old time mm. we can't really tell miserable there's also a computerization thing wasn't there as well yeah, yeah we wanted to get a good range of sure. topics none of which were really in my area of expertise but that, that's fine i can spitball you are literally a victorian <laughs> yeah, awesome. 1890s is right at the end <laughs> I did medieval and early modern lit, so Hamlet, I've got it on lock. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you use the word miserable. We might as well start with Hamlet. Uh, classic bit. Okay, his father, cut the man a break. His father's dead. 
Uh, anyone want to give a quick summary for anyone who has never read this book, who might have vague ideas of what it's even about, who may even know just the to be or not to be skull monologue and that everybody dies at the end? Is there anything more going on here? Who wants to take it? I'm contractually. Everyone dies at the end except for the absolute hottest character. That is correct. Um, I am contractually obligated to point out that to be or not to be does not happen in the same scene as the skull. That's a last poor Yorick. I knew him, Horatio. Oh, fellow right, of right. Infinite Jest. You see? Um, I'm just a cypher for I the uneducated audience. I am also super fun at parties. Um, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, Daniel, technically, Hamlet does have a skull. It's just in it, his It's in his head. head. Yeah, instead right. of in his head. That's a very good point. Um, the extended universe where they go into detail about his own skull. The premise of Hamlet is that, as the subtitle indicates, he is the Prince of Denmark. Um, and, and something's rotten. Something is rotten. It's true. Um, and he has basically come home from college in Wittenberg um, to the castle at Elsinore because his dad has died, which sad. And instead of being made the king of Denmark, his uncle has instead married his mother, which uh, under the, the standards of early modern behavior is incestuous. Um and I think even under the standards of perhaps current modern behavior is a little weird. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and then his best friend Horatio is like, what's up, Hamlet? Great to see you. Um, your dad's ghost is walking the ramparts. And do you maybe want to see what that's about? Because it won't talk to us. My favorite, my favorite part of the first ghost scene is when the guards are like, Horatio, you have a college education. Talk to the ghost. <laughs> You're the only one here with a degree. You'll know how to do it. Um, and so naturally, I mean, the Ghostbusters were all scientists. They were all parapsychologists. Right. Or so. natural philosophers, right. as we called them in the early modern era. And um, <laughs> and so Hamlet goes and talks to his dad's ghost and his dad is like, guess what? I was murdered. Guess who did it? It was your uncle. Um, so you should totally kill that guy. Uh, and uh, Hamlet spends a lot of the play being like. <laughs> Should I? <laughs> Which, again, from an early modern perspective, makes a lot of sense. Sure. I won't take the slander of, oh, he should have just killed the man. Well, but if you're setting out for a good, proper revenge, mm -hmm. A, you want to make sure that ghost is actually from God and not from the devil. And B, you don't want to kill your uncle while he's praying because then he'll go to heaven. And then where is where is your good revenge plot? I ask you. Abby and Daniel, have we got it so far? What are your thoughts? Um, what are your Hamlet thoughts? Fairly accurate. Uh you know, just a lot of stuff happens is what I would say. It's you so know, long. Just, uh, oh, my God. Yeah. If you do Hamlet, if you're Kenneth Branagh, it's four hours long. Um, oh, yeah. Everyone else judiciously. You watch that for the celebrities, though, don't you? You don't watch yeah. that for the, uh, You watch it to go, oh, hey, it's Kate Winslet. <laughs> oh, hey, it's Robin Williams. Oh, my God, Robin Williams is Osric. Robin great, Williams great. is in it? Oh, Robin wow. Williams is in it. See, I can't bring myself to sit through four hours. Right. <laughs> I've never seen it. Roddy, thoughts on Hamlet? Um, I shared most of them already, actually. I try not to think too much about Hamlet. Um, okay, so here's the thing. I just, Hamlet is kind of like, I know that it's one of the big plays. I don't know why I decided to walk in here and be a hater today, but that's just what's happening. Because Wait a I just minute, Roddy, are you choosing no violence? Patience. All of our best or podcasts Hamlet. are when Roddy chooses violence, Jeff. That's right. <laughs> Literally every podcast is me choosing violence. But still, I just have no patience for him right now and his problems because, I don't know, he's just, he's been so long trying to figure out what he wants to do. And then there's a whole mess with Ophelia. And then it's just, I, I can't, I can't deal with Hamlet today. 
I'm sorry, y'all. He's just not my friend. I completely respect that because compromise is for cowards. We do not compromise on our show at all. I love that you hate it. Compromise makes cowards of us all. It's a very... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Divisive play. You either you love it or you hate it. I really don't think there's much. Middle and I feel I feel like I go back and forth on it all the time because I don't actually like it for Hamlet. I like it for Horatio. I like it I because I yeah he's just he's a sweetheart. You know, uh-huh. like he's not a, he's not a himbo because he's too smart to be one. And then I mean he's Hamlet's the only one who's alive at the because end. he's too like he's not hot enough to be one. And then that just leaves us Fortinbras, who's actually technically too smart, but he. He's the best option. And then I guess you have Laertes, but like. He's a Chad. So yes. he's, he's, and not enough he's No, no, no. Okay. We have Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. They're yes. The oh my gosh. Our, like, okay. Precious himbos. I don't know if they like fit the hot in himbo category, but like they're there. They're precious. Um, and, you know, you can protect some, them at all costs, even though they die. You can but, make some <laughs> fun subtextual. There's with one of them is like. Hamlet's like, I did love you once, which like, again, if we can make it gay, we should make it gay. So let's, yes. that's gay. Yes. Um, it's Pride Month, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, what is Horatio's hotness ratio? Ooh. Do you see what we have to deal with? The rhyming this is, couplet for Shakespearean. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Roddy is proud. No, I'm not. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's all I, I have just, to contribute. I don't know. I just have such an. He's just in the middle of this mess. Like he's just there, trying to keep things as normal as possible. And Hamlet's just losing it everywhere. And Horatio's just like literally surrounded by dead bodies at the end of the play. And he's just like, "Well, yes, you're." He's the Louis now. Theroux, isn't he? He's kind of just. Uh, <laughs> Well, and so since Roddy has come on the show to be a hater about Hamlet today, I will I will balance the scales because I'm going to be a hater about Lolita later. So this will be great. Um, I mean, we will both be. Well, yeah. But but so I I enjoy Hamlet um, almost against my own will because I feel like it's one of those plays that everyone is like, oh, it's so good, and then I watch it and I'm like, it can't be that. Oh, it's so good. And I enjoy it as a court intrigue thriller. Um, Like, I actually find that, like, there's this, there is this idea of, like, oh, Hamlet can't make up his mind. I actually think that, like, he's constantly presented with new information. Like, he's always about to do something and then, like, new information. And he's like, wait, like, I don't know. I think that's interesting. So he's the Columbo of his own misery. He's just like, he's just got one more question every time. I'm afraid I don't understand that reference. Well, I'll tell you about Columbo later. Okay. That's Um, cool. And uh, and I also enjoy it as a meditation on grief. Um, I know that a lot has been made about the proximity of the composition of Hamlet with the death of Shakespeare's own son, um, which mm-hmm. I don't I don't know how much I care about that other than I'm sorry that William Shakespeare's <laughs> son died. Um, but I just I, I find it very I don't know. I find that especially my friends who have gone through some big kind of grief mm-hmm. tend to appreciate it on a fairly mm-hmm. personal level just because there's a lot of sure. A lot of discussion, and you have in the in the very you know beginning of it, Hamlet's uncle basically saying, "All of our fathers have died. That's what fathers do. Get, get over it." And Hamlet being like, "No," which I respect. <laughs> Again, I respect. Um, Roddy, he's going through it. 
I do still. So as insofar as like Hamlet, I do particularly enjoy the like the imagery of Hamlet that you can read into. Um, I keep bringing it back to Ophelia because I just she deserves so much better. But, you know, the entire scene with her going mad, the flowers that she like, that is a very important if you know what they mean, like that's very important. You can read so much into that. Of course, there's a poison in the ear, which is very heavy handed, but that still has so much to do with the rest of the play. You can read so deeply into it and it's just a paper waiting to be written that's probably been written a thousand times before. So as a student, as a former student, I really enjoyed Hamlet because I was just like, oh, there are so many places I can take this play. Um, But I mean, even when, what is Hamlet's most effectual moment in the play? Is it when he kills Polonius, where he actually manages to take action? There's so much that you can read into that because um, was, wasn't Polonius like standing behind, behind something the curtain, in Hamlet? Yeah. Yes, how Hamlet can only actually do something without having to look it directly in the face like it has to mm. be shrouded and hidden. You can do so much with that. But he's so annoying. So it's just like <laughs> there's so much there that you can have fun with and that I respect. Once again, as a former student, as a person who loves Shakespeare, I do actually deeply love him. But, you know, Hamlet is just, you know, you talk to me next week. I might absolutely love the play. I can never consistently decide where I stand on this You're play. as taciturn as Hamlet. Interesting. What will you folks Chris, think? Is taciturn as Hamlet the man who never shuts up? what's the most compelling thing well i i can watch hamlet i can watch a production of hamlet about once every 10 years because that's all that i can just like that's that's when i can refill the well enough to give something to it because it really takes it out of you but i think the reason why i'm drawn to it why i enjoy it every time is because hamlet and i mean this like as kindly as i can he's a giant loser and we've all been there at some point. It's just him at his lowest moment making these terrible decisions. Just everything's sort of stripped away, even though he has all of this privilege, actually. Just that that feeling of the world ganging up on you. And I don't know. I, I just think it's something that people can relate to. Like, we've all been Hamlet at one point or another. Sure. For me, anyway. That's uh, you know Maybe that's revealing a little bit about me. <laughs> maybe there's a little Hamlet in all of us. Is, that, is that really what you're... <laughs> Yeah, my true Hamlet was the friends we made along the way. (laughs) (laughs) The friends we killed along the way. Yeah, boy, I really impulsively stabbed the curtain today. I'll tell you what: the friends (laughs) who maybe drowned, maybe got pushed out of a tree along the way. Um, Mm -hmm. Speaking of Ophelia, so when I think about Hamlet, I actually I'm not actually sure I've read the thing all the way through because there's a lot of different. Um, the Shakespeare class that I took in college was based around the first folio and textual differences um, with plays that we had that appeared in Quarto, which was fascinating. Um, but I've never actually, I think, read Hamlet all in one go, but I've seen a number of productions, um, including David Tennant, your boyfriend and mine. Um, and <laughs> But my favorite is actually Andrew Scott's uh, National Theater production, where uh, Andrew Scott's Hamlet, but Jessica Brown Findlay probably best known as Sybil from Downton Abbey, is Ophelia. And I find her to be a revelation in part because I think she's been playing Ophelia, not literally, but (laughs) spiritually for most of her acting career. Um, And the thing that I love about her mad scene is she's the sanest person in the room. Uh, And... Yeah. And also you come away from that uh, from that production going, oh, someone pushed her out of that tree like she that was not a suicide. Um, And so, you know, I find 
I find the different productions very compelling. And, and I mean, there's so much of Hamlet. You have to pick, you have to pick, you know, what you're really, really going to emphasize. Um, and the Andrew Scott production emphasizes a lot, kind of the, the voyeurism of being part of the Royal family and the constant surveillance Mm -hmm. that Hamlet is under. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just keep thinking about you saying a bit, or Roddy saying a bit heavy handed with the poison and me being just like, well, yes, it was a heavy hand because he killed him. So Thoughts on those hot takes? I'm sorry, Roddy. I work with him every day. It's rubbing off on me. Yes. It's fine. Um, I I like the idea about um, pacing and who says what and, and, you know, things that sort of happen off stage as well. We talked about that a little bit in our episode, but I've been thinking a lot about Gertrude and how little she says and yet how much subtext is bubbling under that. She's such an intriguing character, but also... Hamlet himself, like, he does a lot in the play. It just happens off stage. There's a whole pirate adventure we don't get to see. Stuff that we see is him dithering for hours and hours on end. And it's like, and yet you cut the fun pirate adventure for time. And so I just, there's something there with the pacing, as well as, you know, his, his descent into madness, Ophelia's descent into madness. There's something about, like, things that are not said Versus what's being said. Yeah. And Gertrude as well. And it kind of paints the negative space, doesn't it, almost, in that sort of, uh, you know, artistic sort of metaphor. Yeah. Like, it's it's more operating in a kind of field of absences and sort of interstices and things like that rather than focusing on the actual content. I mean, you get these interpretations of um, Hamlet that it's not – it was never really meant for production, that it was always meant to be read. And it does sometimes feel like that, doesn't it? It feels like almost like a, a grab bag of ideas and of like sort of. It's a stage reading. Yeah, hypothetical of, yeah. characters that could, you know, have, you know, express these kind of, you know, witty, but also very kind of profound and existential, you know, issues. Sure. Uh, it feels almost like it's not really intended to be a, a coherent artwork in that sense. It, um, it, it feels more like a kind of a thesis. Can I, any closing thoughts on Hamlet before I move us into Picture of Dorian Gray? Uh, ungracefully, I think. Grace, gracelessly. I mean, Did we I think Dorian Gray is like that as well, actually, isn't it? Yeah. Dorian Gray seems like ah. lots of good ideas. Yeah. Trying to dress them up as a plot. Let's, having now. Let's get wild. Have, yes. <laughs> so okay, I can't storm out of the room because of all of the wires, Jeff. We've discussed this. This um, is like low grade stuff. I even have one planned for later. Well, now when I'm I, going to spend the rest when of the I ask podcast you guys, living in fear. When I ask you guys to back off on the back off. Uh, anyway, so the picture of Dorian Gray. <laughs> was, was that? Was that mean? <laughs> back off, as in don't critique him. We have lots of. Oh right, sorry. <laughs> We continue. Are we allowed to swear? First of all, go for it. Or no? Okay. Um, secondly, do you are are these all off the cuff? Because I'm very impressed. Or are these prefabs? Are you are you a no, Daniel these, or are you Matt? No, they can both attest. These are all off the cuff. This is just how Jeff's my brain twisted, is, twisted brain works. My brain is broken in a good way. <laughs> like that. See, we just normally take turns being ashamed of one another when we do these jokes, so I kind of don't know how to react. I'm like, you're not Daniel. I can't handle <laughs> no. my feelings when you make oh. these jokes. Oh, Roddy and I live in a state of of constant secondhand embarrassment. So yeah. join us. Okay. Join us here in the state. You're all, yeah. 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 Please like, be in this space with us. Yeah. It's painful. But as long as we're together, 
we will somehow get through this. Solidarity is the whole ball game. This is like when I lean toward the mic, you can just like start. Yeah, going. you can preemptively. You can it's preemptively. okay. Oh, if you okay. see me blink for too long, it's because I know it's coming. That's mm-hmm. basically my tell. There's a lot of so. listen to old episodes. There's a lot of Roddy sighing. There's a lot of there's a lot of Roddy sighing. There's a lot of like strained silences. And then occasionally you'll make so like I think you did so many puns in a row in our litigating literature episode that like the silences became mildly impressed against our own will because how <laughs> how did you how, anyway you guys are portraying me in a bad light let's okay. talk about Dorian a portrait Gray. Dorian Gray I mean yeah I completely agree like co- collection of interesting ideas trying to be a plot and I think I think y'all talked about this in your episode on Dorian Gray of like. It does in some ways feel like a play or like when I was reading it, I was like, oh, it's a it's a playwright trying to write a novel. And maybe it's okay that he only did it once (laughs) Um, because and I think that's partially why I like the shorter edition better is that it feels like the abridged. Don't say that. All right. It's not. We'll cut that from the record. (laughs) It's not that it's abridged. It's that he wrote a short version first and then he expanded it. I don't like the expand. I have credentials, Jeff. Mm. You can't tarnish my reputation. Do you see the offense? Do you see the offense? I just, that was abridged. Abridged too far. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? I I will say, I will just take that particular bullet. I would take the abridged version over the actual version. Mostly because, okay, I loved Dorian Gray when I read it the first time. Same. I had read it in a few years when um, you all did the episode. And then I was like, oh, well, if we're going to talk about it, I should definitely give it a reread. But also don't have time to like physically sit anymore. So I decided to listen to it. Um, and I was just bristling with anger for like the nine hours of that audiobook because I was just like what did I tell you Mary Graham when I texted you oh I said that the book was pretty privilege gone wild yes like it was just <laughs> who doesn't like puns hold on that wasn't that's a pun. pun that's an assessment that's a synopsis that's the truth that's a, that's a clever pithy that's what it is yeah <laughs> but did you spell it W. All right. No. Oh, no. Had I been at the Um, control? No. Roddy exercised normal orthographic control. Okay. Um, But. uh, (laughs) But Roddy, I will say you're bordering on a Lord Henry Wattonism. That's true. Yeah. That is true. It's very kind of witticism. You cannot turn this book into a drinking game because if you took a shot every time you did like a Lord Henry sort of wilding witticism, we would be. Well, I want you two to take the lead because less than a month ago you had the episode. So I, I meant I imagine there's more to expunge. What what are your lingering thoughts? What what's your take on Picture of Dorian Gray? We I'm amazed we made it through the episode without citing even one of Lord Henry's little pithy quips. <laughs> that was that, a special effort. It, it, it was a it was a particular yeah. effort, and it's it was all of these famous quotations that were like, no, we're just not even acknowledging them because the first chapter in you're introduced to this this guy lord henry and oh my god he's so funny and he's so great and then he just keeps going Mm -hmm. and he keeps going and by the end of the first chapter you're like is this going to be the whole freaking book and it is kind of it just it does feel like his twitter feed just constantly you know he you know oscar wilde thought of this at a party it's like oh this is my little prefab i'm going to put aside for later and where can i fit it in uh just throw it all here it's where like Bad tweets go to die. Yeah. The strange thing, it would be better if it was just those, if it was like, 
epigrammatic and it didn't try and there was no plot yeah it didn't try and dress them up as a plot i think i much prefer it if it was like a philosophical treatise that was also funny he does that a little bit at the beginning because it starts with a little philosophical essay and that's, that's my favorite bit that's yeah as well because he's not attempting to shoehorn it in anywhere so it's a the meditations but like a la dorian gray essentially yeah i think or so, even yeah. pascal's thoughts i'm thinking like it's, it's a bit like nietzsche isn't it i think it's like a, sort of, okay. yeah. a funny a funny beyond good and evil maybe beyond funny and unfunny or i don't know it's, it's not really a joke uh, maybe it's beyond unfunny i don't know <laughs> <laughs> It's it's it was interesting. So in addition to the, I also read the critical essays um, that were attached to the annotated edition we have at the library, and it's amusing Don't to me <laughs> how many how many uh, people when the book came out were like, "It's not very good, is it?" Like like they were just and and it was. And the thing is, I always enjoy a Faust story, like slap Faust on anything, and I'm like, "Oh, oh, oh what's going to happen? Is he going to be damned?" Yes. Roddy, like, yes. Roddy also a fan of uh, contract law, too. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> and so I'm just like any any Faust riff, like Marlowe's is my favorite. Sure. But but any Faust riff, I'm like, oh, ho, ho, it is for me. And so even when it it's not even that good, yeah. I'm like, well, I have to stick with it because I, I want I want the expected release. Of... You like being people being damned? It yes. depends on the person, I like Jeff. Facing it the consequences of their choices. Yes. Like, and then they slam like, the bookshop and they're like, that's a damn good story. It's like, you know, you after around and then you found oh, out. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Who could have possibly predicted that this would happen? Especially oh, wow. when they when they lay it out very clearly, like this is what's going to happen. Oh my to god, you. my absolute favorite. Scene. Pretty good deal, though. I think you get something out of it. The rest of us are going to hell anyway. At least <laughs> this lot, you know. At least uh, this lot got you know some perks. You know what my, I mean? My favorite scene in Marlowe's Doctor Faustus is when Mephistopheles lays out the terms and conditions, and Faustus signs in his own blood, and then. Five lines later, Faustus is like, so am I going to hell? And Mephistopheles is like, I'm holding the contract that you just signed in your own blood in my hand. Mm-hmm. Like the height of comedy for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, but with Dorian Gray, I mean, of course, we also can't discuss it without discussing how extremely gay it is. Like the first time I listened to it with Michael Sheen narrating it, I mean, I got five minutes in and I was like, oh, I didn't realize it was there on the page because it like opens with a painter and a man lounging on right. a settee in a garden. And I'm like, oh, and so it's like gay, gay. Right. Interesting. I didn't realize right. I'm <laughs> that I wasn't going to have to read anything into it. Um, and the the, the TypeScript. Hey, right. What'd you guys what's say? The, what's the most heteronormative of furniture? Oh, a chair that you have to sit correctly in. <laughs> it's your chair. At, it's your desk chair at home, oh, or I even thinking, standing next to the chair, or even yeah. Get a washing machine. <laughs> That's a piece of furniture. It's a white good. Is if you try hard enough, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel can't really conceptualize because he's the sort of the the resident heterosexual. He is the most heterosexual who has ever heterosexual. So right. he, I just it's constant trying to. Keep him up. Say, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's I it's okay. Sort of staring it's off into the distance as you describe him also just kind of like nails that in. I like took I took note of that. The gaze. Daniel's just like no, no, I can't. <laughs> just staring into the distance. I identify with that. Great podcast material. That's my expression. I'm missing out with my expressions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
why we do spend a lot of time on it. Let's get back to that. You can never see it. You can never see the picture. What is there? That's it should right. have pictures in it, shouldn't it? Why are you gesticulating like an angry old man? This is mad, isn't it? it should... Now, if, I want... if none of the four of you bring this back to focus, I will take us off on a tangent. I have one ready, but I don't want to steal the spotlight. I mean, like, what is there to say about what is there to say about Dorian Gray other than gay? Gayest, if you read it in the version that Wilde submitted to his first publisher before they crossed a bunch of the gay stuff out. Um, and dear listener, you can access that edition here at your Ferndale Area District Library after I re- turn it back in. Um, and uh, also Faust. That is mostly what I have to say about Dorian Gray. Roddy? I will say that just, you know, actually, Daniel has a point, you know, is your best selfie still your best selfie if everyone sees it? Will you see the flaws of it once you post it? Is it still perfect? This is I don't know. This is getting me close to my this is getting me close to my tangent, though. This is my tangent. Like when I was reading the first chapter, I was taking note of how much the word influence was coming around. And then I was thinking about youth and beauty. And then I was thinking about influencers. And then I was thinking about how we're constantly with selfies leaving behind our own pictures. Only they are staying perfect and we're aging. And so I kept, and now we mentioned Twitter and then this whole book. Dorian I'm thinking, Gray, OG influencer novel? Yeah, Question I think so. Dorian Gray needs to be an epistolary Twitter feed novel. Did I just say something profound? Yes. <laughs> that is why you run the podcast, Jeff, is you're very good at running the podcast. Anyways. Oh, wait, did you just say 10 things I hate about you? <laughs> yeah, like, a, like Clueless, like sort of modernization. Of yeah. That. We really love that movie on this podcast. Yes. So I'm like. Yeah. 10 Things I Hate About You took one of the worst William Shakespeare plays and made it into a rom-com so good. I'm not sure. Maybe that's the reason the rom-com is dead. Long live the rom-com. <laughs> is that people looked at 10 <laughs> Things I Hate About You and went, I'm never going to be able to top that. That's right. No, you can't. I think that's what happened. Yeah. So so we just uh, threw a lot on the table. Uh, Abby and Daniel, you want to catch up? We're, we're just a triplet of chuckleheads over here. Sorry. <laughs> We're a mess, but we're, it's fine. We're all over the place. No, <laughs> influencers. Sorry. <laughs> it's about aesthetics, isn't it? I think that's the other thing as well as gay and Faustian. But as, as you were saying, Roddy, that the point is is that that's sort of tied in. And that's why, that's why it could never be a philosophical work unto itself, because it needs to be tied into this Faustian narrative to have these ideas of aesthetics. Like, if you see it, does it suddenly become less, you know, less magical or whatever or is it no longer the perfect artwork i feel like sorry i'm being earnest here oh. but we sorry. are earnest sometimes but, it, it happens by accident yeah well um yeah i think yeah that's it's about the faustian narrative is also about the kind of projection of oneself into artwork isn't it i think that's uh that's the interesting thing that wild does with um the the kind of standard plot model of the faustian narrative i suppose thomas mann does it too doesn't he with them um, but first, is that's also about artistic creation. But, but I mean, yeah, anyway. he talks about it quite explicitly, where all of the the artists they talk too much about how they they um they talk about how they pour too much of themselves into their art and they have no personal life because of it. And it's that you know the, the divorce between art and the artist. And 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 Wilde does that himself. Wilde has two proxies. He has Basil the painter and he has Lord Henry, mm. the the sort of uh, the socialite. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it is a fascinating philosophical work. I would like to correct something though, because you said we never see the painting, Daniel. We do see the painting many, many times. Dorian talks us through it, but it's something that could only ever exist in written form. Because he, he, he talks about it as like, oh, then the, 
the painting took on this sneer and it, it had there's a glint in the eye and it's all these really intangible things which is why i don't think film versions of this work very well in mouse hunt oh the portrait of um the, the, the dad, film. yeah the in mouse film. hunt the portrait of the dad's expression changes and that works really well it's a very funny device and <laughs> and yet the film version of dorian gray despite the fact that it stars ben barnes is the least sexy film i've ever seen despite the Maybe. fact that the again i'm going to repeat it stars ben barnes uh, they did him dirty. In they that. did him dirty, did and they did Colin Firth dirty uh, in that film too. I no, did not watch that movie. Don't waste your time, I, Roddy. But I, I will say that I find Basil's character the most interesting. <laughs> um, I just I feel like I've decided to pick the precious characters today and like clutch them to my chest protectively <laughs> because like he's so good. He's so good and he just wants Dorian to be good. And he's so good that he puts so much of himself into the painting that he can no longer effectively be an artist anymore. Like, I don't know how much we can take, you know, Harry's perspective, but, you know, he says that Basil's work was never really the same. It was never quite as good. And we kind of take, I feel like the sort of, inclination is to just take the painting as reflective of Dorian because obviously it takes on all of Dorian's flaws and things like that but I feel like it would be really interesting to talk about the aspect of it also taking away from Basil just as much as it's Mm. taken away from anyone else I don't feel like we get that perspective because it physically takes on Dorian's flaws so like obviously it is his soul after Dorian does that entire invocation but I don't know I want more Basil I want to hear more about his life and his story and you know just what it means that the painting also took from him like there's something there I don't know what it is but I don't really want to think about Dorian anymore I'm so tired of him (laughs) but it's kind of the same way I don't want to think about Alfred Douglas anymore you know like because when when you mentioned that like yeah it takes something away from Basil I mean honestly it reminds me not to read too much biography into it but it, it reminds me of how much Wilde's love of Bosie took away from Wilde. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know. I think that's a really good point, though, Roddy. I find it very sad that when Basil disappears. Sorry, Basil and Henry, that they're both wild figures. The painting is also both, yeah, Basil and Dorian figures. I like that. that it's mm-hmm. all about the subject as this kind of fragmented thing, kind of shared between uh Figures. And the, the Basil's artwork as well is quite fragmented because we open the book saying, oh, I've been sketching or painting Dorian every single day for however many months. What about his other artwork of Dorian? There, there are many pictures of Dorian Gray. What magical powers do they have? <laughs> well, but, I mean, do they? And he talks about like, oh, he he's the person who makes my art shine. Presumably Basil goes on to paint other things and what happens to his artwork and, you know, what happens to these other pictures. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting that we center on this one and there's this whole cluster, this whole constellation that we never hear anything about. A bowl of fruit that never rots. <laughs> <laughs> so Basil put just as much of his soul into that painting as Dorian sort of, with his little outburst, imposed his own soul into the painting too. So I don't think that anything Basil produced before or after would ever shine in the same way as this particular picture. And then Dorian just has to ruin it because, you know, he's like, oh no, I might one day get a wrinkle. So what I'm hearing is that we have to collect all of the pictures of Dorian Gray and cast them into Mount Doom. 
Is yeah. that what's yeah. happened I think here? That's a, like, <laughs> okay. logical. But we yeah. have the one picture to roll them all already. Mm-hmm. There oh. were the other pictures. Don't get me started on Tolkien. I'll go forever. You said nine that pictures was, to the men. Like and... the fake, they were the fake pictures. They're the not as powerful ones, but this is the one. Okay, wait. And, oh my gosh, that would make what's his face Sauron. Harry? Yes. <laughs> Imagine, imagine Harry ruling a, a a great and terrible Harry ruling over your your land. We'd never escape the banter. It would be terrible. Well, instead of an eye, it's just his voice, just saying witticisms across Middle Earth. I don't like it, Roddy. I don't like it. Well, um, green so- shining across. The- Something I am interested in that might be a good segue into Lolita is the is the idea of the immorality of literature, <laughs> like ah. because another uh, in addition to a lot of people when Dorian Gray came out saying oh, I don't think this is very good, they were also like scandalized. My God, it's going to ruin us all. Lock up your daughters. Lock up your sons. Right. Um, and uh, and and it's been I don't know being in the maelstrom of both. Um, currently wildfire haze but also moral panic uh, about literature um i don't like that we're throwing it back to the 1890s stop doing that um but it's but it's been interesting to to read you know about about people in the 1890s being like how could you ever have written something how could how could a person be so perverted as to have written something like that and how how dare it be pervade at the shop because i mean there was a there was a newsstand that was ubiquitous throughout london that stopped carrying the magazine that dorian gray was initially serialized in because people were so scandalized um and then you have similar like reactions to lolita about like well how could someone have ever written something so you know depraved or whatever So interesting to me because so I actually was not able to finish Lolita. Um but Confession. that is but that is not like I wasn't I of course never sat there finding myself saying like how could Nabokov have ever written this? I was just like, "Oh, I feel sick to my stomach." Yeah. <laughs> so um But also it's well written. But it's an interesting piece of literature. Mm. Uh, I think it's one of the most beautifully written books I've ever read. I also do not ever want to read it again. (laughs) That's just... Across the pond takes. I I read Lolita when I was in college, my senior year. It was like towards the end of the year. And um, they were just like, we read all of the great books. So now we're just going to pick random books. Um, I did a great books curriculum in college so yeah we had gone through everything chronologically and we you, did like, you, know, and you did the we whole canon you did the whole one dubliners which i actually loved at the time and then in one of my other classes they were like we're just gonna do a bunch of random books and one of them was lolita and you know that was a very uncomfortable class read because we had spent all that time looking at and litigating quote-unquote literature all that time and everyone is so uncomfortable with it and I was just like well the subject matter is horrifying but there's still the writing itself I think is the sort of easier thing to focus on with that book if the rest of it isn't really palatable to you and like that is a master class in writing I love purple prose too so I was just <laughs> having the time of my life but you know it's so well done. It's just 
but it's gross. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of almost felt like the opposite that the style of writing is so, yeah, so purple that it becomes almost like nauseating in itself. Oh, and also, yeah. there's so many elements of the text where the style of writing is so florid that it almost obscures what's actually happening in a way that, you know, makes it quite, it makes it palatable, doesn't it? It makes it almost like you can read it quite comfortably. I, uh, I, you know I, what I mean? Well, because there was, there was a bit that we were recapping on the show and Daniel was sitting there with a script going, I don't understand what's happening in this scene. And it was literally just Humbert saying, I was sitting on the couch, Lolita came over and she sat next to me and she put her legs up in my lap. That's all that happens, but he writes about it in this incredibly Byzantine, obfuscating way where you're, you're there going, what is this? What's yeah. happening? You know, so yeah. it's, it's that constant, I mean, the book is so obsessed with psychology and that's it's that constant overthinking and replaying and interpreting or really deliberately sort of almost dissociating mm. with what's happening. It's, it is a fascinating sort of portrait in psychology. I think this is my favorite book that we've covered. I think so, yeah. On our Probably wouldn't have read it otherwise as well. But I, I think the thing that makes people the most uncomfortable is not actually what happens. It's the scenes where he kind of points a mirror up to society. Mm. And he's the, the uncomfortable thing is how thin that line is between what we deem to be acceptable and what he's actually doing. So he's perving on her, that's gross. But when he goes into the mall and he's looking at all these advertisements saying like, oh, younger sister can't wait till she's, you know, wearing these tight little sweaters that'll make boys drool one day. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's a good way to yeah, sell it to yeah, preteens, yeah. you know, to sell clothes to them or whatever. And it, he really, like, I think that's the thing that makes people sort of, that's where the discomfort actually is, is that that line is not, it's it's not that thick. Yeah. It's also funny that you say uh, mirror and like talk about shallowness because I think the weird thing about Humbert is he's very kind of, if we can talk about him as a person, he's very like sort of psychologistically conscious, isn't he? He's very in, interested in con exploring these kind of ideas of what makes the self, but he is very shallow as well. Isn't he? Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's the weird thing, isn't it? You read this incredibly florid prose that's, um, you know, elaborating on all sorts of kind of sensations and alluding to all sorts of crazy things. But in fact, he's a kind of very, yeah, shallow man. And that also kind of speaks to the culture, doesn't it? That it seems incredibly um, sophisticated, but in fact, it's just this kind of nothing, this kind of sordid thing. Yeah. Yeah, sorted is very much the word that comes to mind for me. And it was interesting because when I was reading it, I think I got about halfway through and I came over to Jeff's desk and I was like, how is this book still going? This book feels <laughs> like it's long. It's, yeah, and yet, and yet. Um, but I would sit down, I mean, I would be really absorbed in it for like an hour or two at a time. And given what COVID and like the pandemic has done to my attention span, that's really saying something. And yet I would surface and I would be like, I feel gross. Um, and I think so much of it comes from like the double consciousness of like, reading yeah his descriptions of oh she just put her feet on my lap or whatever and then but also like knowing what's going on because um mm. i've really enjoyed reading sort of the commentary about how much lolita is completely silenced within the book i mean even in the title that's not he's the only one who calls her that it's not her name everyone calls her dolores or dolly mm -hmm. um and uh and so like in in my experience of reading it like trying to think about like what is the sort of opposite perspective? Like, what is this, what is this girl who is like experiencing basically? Um, and I think it also doesn't help that like being a children's librarian, I work with children and mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, I'm not sure I can read about, um, you know, this like right. after I go home from work. Right. Um, but like, yeah, just from, I, maybe I'll finish it one day, but just, yeah, from a literary standpoint, I did find it 
really, really interesting. I mean, like, especially as a commentary on that kind of like sordidness of mid-century suburban American culture. Mm -hmm. A deep book about shallow people. Perhaps. I can't even be mad at you for that one. I think that's a fair assessment. That was Daniel's. Daniel teed it up. But just, yeah, very nicely pithy Lee book. But, uh, yeah, fair enough. I mean, we we were quite nervous when we recapped Lolita. Were we going to get angry letters or something? Oh, it's one of my favorite episodes of the pod. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Yeah, because yeah. I, I mean, I, I didn't want to be like, you know, these hot takes got no breaks. But I don't think we were saying anything, you know, controversial in, in our assessment. It's it's really quite the achievement in literature. It's it's certainly not sympathizing with the with the pedophile and i think that's where people got really confused like when we did our bad goodreads reviews segment people i think really thought because it's from his perspective there's like no divorce between author and narrator so it must be sympathizing with him and everything the narrator is saying must be true rather than like this guy's a consummate liar mm-hmm. so yeah i, I just I, it's it's a good i think it's a, it'd probably be a good teaching tool to try to help students separate out like Okay, he's the character is saying this. Is this what the author is portraying? That said, Nabokov did say that if he could go back to any moment in history, it would be when Edgar Allan Poe married his thirteen-year-old cousin. So, and do what? Attend the wedding? And right. There is person. a lot of Poe all over that book, which I wasn't yeah. expecting, but noticed because you know Humbert's like, ah, I can, you know, kind of like, oh, I can point to, I can point to this sort of celebrated of president yeah. and also like a celebrated person whose, whose name we all know. Right. Um, Jerry Lee um, Lewis doesn't mention him, but yeah, but he was around at that time. Yeah, he, he was talking about, yeah. He was marrying 13 year olds as, Oh, Lita more like Polita. Yeah. Um, Eisenhower's America maybe wasn't as wholesome as we, as it is uh, mythologized to be. It's all those freeways, Jeff. It's all those. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> good on him. <laughs> yeah. I and I think that. I'm, Go ahead, Rabbit. In Points in Dorian Gray, it feels like both Wilde and his characters are sort of bloviating, like they're just so pompous and they just won't shut up. <laughs> but like with Lolita, even though it's a deep book about shallow people, about shallow things, it doesn't quite give that same feeling. I wouldn't say like the uncomfortableness with the situation isn't necessary, and you know, disdain and like discussed towards Humbert Humbert is not the same as our annoyance with the characters in the mm-hmm. picture of Dorian Gray. Like there's a difference to that. And I feel like that also kind of speaks at least to me about why I am so uncharitable towards Dorian Gray now, but while why I am also at the same point willing to like always give Nabokov like the benefit of the doubt because I just really love his writing. But mm-hmm. I also think that speaks to the difference between the books because I'm not sure that Nabokov's really philosophizing in the same way. Um, so there's that too. Like I feel there might, I mean, there's philosophy to everything, but not in the same way. Like I don't think he's necessarily trying to make up point in the same ways that Oscar Wilde mm-hmm. is just like trying yeah. to make a point. And I so. think that's Oscar actually Wilde part of what... Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. oh, I was just saying, it definitely feels like Oscar Wilde is writing a thesis, like mm-hmm. an academic thesis that he's painfully constructing a plot around. And it, it works for me, but I could see that it definitely doesn't work for everyone. But like, could you imagine the three guys we've been talking about, you know, 
Hamlet, Lord Harry, Humbert Humbert. Do you imagine the podcasts they would have? And they would have them. Oh, they are mean, all podcast you know, bros. This is the wrong part of the podcast. <laughs> I'm sure you could find one. <laughs> I like how you did that. Can we get like an AI generated? Uh... <laughs> oh, that, they said that, like, can we get like Sophocles in? And yeah. they, can, they, can he talk to so and so? Nietzsche, I think, is the, of course, because Nietzsche. That would be the Nietzsche. most inseparable <laughs> conversation. I wonder... would not like his fanboys at all. <laughs> I wonder if um if Nabokov's like well, actually I don't wonder I kind of think this is the case if Nabokov's lack of moralizing is part of what drives some people absolutely nuts about this book and like why they hate it is they want the book to be like and also pedophilia bad although it's like I mean did you think so does it have a happy ending like what what did you yeah. <laughs> what do you think what do you mm, um but I just <laughs> I don't, but the most radical move would be for it to have a happy ending right which it definitely doesn't (laughs) for anyone um and Bokov is just a moralist at heart he's just like Charles Dickens or someone yeah (laughs) sentimental old man Mm -hmm. yeah um so I'm always uh I don't know when people get into a tizzy over books I'm always interested in the reasons why even though I'm usually like I feel like you have missed the point of literature um yeah it's it go ahead Roddy I just think that people look for something that tells them how to feel Um, like we I mean, especially now we have so many indicators everywhere that always tell us how to feel when we consume something like movies, for example, there's even if you're not paying attention to it, there's the coloring, there's a score in the background that like sets the mood and things like that. So you kind of don't really have to, I don't know, think too hard about what you're feeling or like sit too deeply in like trying to assess what's going on like if they're a completely black and white film with no score i feel like maybe then people might figure it out but like it or they would hate it but you know with certain books with literature you're not going to always be told how you should feel about something you're going to have to kind of sit and deal with that yourself unless you know the author Oscar Wilde is trying very deeply to tell you how to feel throughout the book, but Nabokov's not doing that. So, mm-hmm. you know, that makes it really difficult because if you're reading this book and the author is not obviously, you know, going out of their way to, I don't know, like rail against this you. character. Yeah. Then you're like, well, am I supposed to think that it's a good thing? And it's like, no, you're not. That's just, that's not what the goal of this particular author is. And I feel like people have a hard time with that. It's not like the <laughs> author's going to just say, what do you want me to do? Paint you a picture? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we hilarious. see a lot as well with declining, sort of declining media literacy or declining literacy rates full stop. You know, when we have students coming in who are just sort of taught to the test and they, they're not used to sitting with something that's uncomfortable, sitting with ambiguity or discomfort is really uncomfortable for them and because they're not used I to don't it. Like it. I do too, <laughs> but you know, we're, you're a simple man. Yeah, exactly. It's simple. It's simple, simple country lawyer. And <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you're right. You're obviously right though that it's the same. But I was, I was thinking also that the weird thing is that it's um, it's often like aesthetically experimental works that say like I'm not really here to talk about morals. So I was thinking about Flaubert's Madame Bovary and how his friends he wrote this incredibly elaborate 
kind of fantasy poem about the temptation of St. Anthony and his friends were like, why don't you do the opposite of that? Like do something incredibly dull about incredibly banal people. And that's how he wrote Man and Bovary. And that's, and he got into trouble for it, but it was purely an experiment. And it feels the same with Nabokov, that it's almost like I want to construct the most kind of elaborately shallow person I can. And it's strange that Dorian Gray should actually be about aesthetics, but have that moral edge or or if you know what I mean it has a moral message despite being about aesthetics whereas Nabokov has an aesthetic message despite being about morals but there's room to talk about morals in uh, uh, literature isn't there even if like yeah maybe you don't need to get so upset about it as students do you need to have that kind of aesthetic register to deal with these works rather than purely being upset or offended by them well I do find that interesting about Wilde where he he goes out of his way at the little essay at the beginning to say there is no such thing as a good book or a bad book it's only well written or poorly written and I'm like but you did work in the little little moral bit at the end Dorian is very unhappy with his Faustian deal he kills himself to redeem himself and that's the end you know it's and I just find it really interesting that you you gave it actually quite a conventional redemption arc ending what a bold essay so tacit. Sold out. <laughs> did did Shakespeare's the only one that didn't sell out because everyone dies? Yeah, I'm glad you. Yeah, exactly. We've we've found a lot of ways to tie book three and book two together, mm-hmm. but I wanted to bring Hamlet in right at the end. You know, unsympathetic character, no happy ending. No, it's, 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 all, play. it's all completely play. futile because Fortinbras comes in and invades. So what was the point of any of it? Yeah, Fortinbras mm-hmm. shows up to the end of the play five minutes late with Starbucks. Yeah, um. and uh i mean but the thing about the thing about the thing about hamlet the thing thing about the thing about hamlet look at all the books that i have on my shelf that's the thing about hamlet um is that (laughs) the thing about hamlet is that i don't come to it for a happy like i I, I come because (laughs) 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 like i mean i don't know i come because like i mean i can handle I can handle watching Hamlet more than once every 10 years. Um, the Tempest is my once every 10 years play, but that's only because I had to do it two semesters in a row in college. So I've, I'm tempested <laughs> out and Prospero drives me. N- I hate that guy. Um, but, uh, but like, I don't, I like, I come to Hamlet for everybody dying because sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I am in a mood where I'm like, everything is trash. I wish to see everyone die. <laughs> like, I don't know. That's 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 catharsis. Don't give me that look, Jeff. That's catharsis. I was just trying to work um, in that, that the Tempest is my Desert Island play. That was all I was, was going to go for. That's, that's all oh, I was thinking. So, but I also, because Shakespeare is not without um, like that element of moral outrage, which you see, I think, less from um people who tend to watch it now, like Roddy, can you think of, I mean, Shrew is probably the one that people tend to most be like, this is, this is terrible. (laughs) And in many ways it is like, sure. Yeah. But I, but also thinking about like Shakespeare had to deal with government censors, you know, when, when plays got put into the register in order to be performed. So like, there's not something very fully formed there, but like, there still is that element of, you're still in conversation with, what is permissible in society. Um, and I there- mean, when we did our Shakespeare, um, our last one where we talked about him on his birthday, yeah. we talked about how and he had to tactic. sort of match 
form in his early days, like the conventions of the time? What was the more popular forms of storytelling? Like what was what was in at the time before he grew in popularity to where he could really do his own thing and be as weird as he wanted to be? And I feel like that kind of speaks to this. I will say, though, that the we talked about catharsis with um, tragedies Mm -hmm. and I don't really feel catharsis from Hamlet the same way that I do from like Lear and Othello where it's like, Oh, this hurts so good. Like there's like in Lear, what Mary Graham uh, so aptly said at the time is that you have this moment where you feel like, Oh, they might do this. They might win. Like the army is coming from France. Like they're going to pull this together. And then it falls apart so horrifically, so beautifully. And it's just like, oh, this hurts so good. And then (laughs) for Othello, it's that, I mean, I wrote my thesis on Othello when I was in college. And the thing that I love about that play is that in the end, while Iago does quote unquote get arrested, like, okay, Everyone behind him is still dead. You know, all these people's reputations have been ruined. And his only thing is that I'm just not going to talk about this anymore. He He's does been, exercise he has not shut up his the entire right play. He's like, well, I'm just done talking now. And that's the end of the play. Like, that. that's agonizing. And I love it because it's just painful. But Hamlet is a little too clean for me. Like, yes, everyone's dead. But it's like, here, Fortinbras good job. You survived the longest. You get the throne now. Enjoy your latte. Like, you know, it's just, it's so okay. See, and everyone, I kind of rocks fell and everyone died. All right. I cool. kind of like that. I it's so agony. Like, a little too. Where's the pain? Well, because sometimes you don't want to feel agony, agony. If I want agony, I'll watch Lear. But like, Sometimes one has to unwind in a bad temper with an adult beverage and you don't want your heart like completely ripped out of your chest with a grapefruit spoon. You just want it like, I don't know, a cleaner cut. Like I find something. It just feels anticlimactic. I find something. You did all this build up. Good night, sweet prince is anticlimactic to you. Yeah, like, is it meant to be anticlimactic though? The, the point is, it's just all these people babbling on for hours and hours and hours, and then at the end they all die, and it just it, it, it yeah, meant nothing. It's all for nothing, isn't that? It point? was like sound and fury signifying nothing. Different, different play. Different play. Macbeth I actually just, might be my favorite tragedy because I don't feel bad at the end at all. I'm like, you got no, it. Great. Yeah, I'm like, if you're gonna make it a tragedy, make it like tragic, like. Ruin it for everyone. It does feel like experimental, Hamlet, in that sense, doesn't it? It does feel like he's trying to work his way out of tra- tragedy, but with the kind of tragedy rule book. Well, because he is doing so, the revenge tragedy is such a popular genre at the time, which, like Titus Andronicus, one of the early ones uh, where people get baked into pies and then eaten, um, actually first read Titus Andronicus on Pie Day. Ah. For what that's worth, yeah. uh, it's just where it fell in the syllabus. Um, no, March fourteenth, March fourteenth, because it's three point one four. Oh, American okay. date system. Uh, so, I guess it would be the what thirteenth? No, fourteenth three. Fourteenth of March for the British. Yes. No. All right. Three point. Yeah. They're the same one. month. No, thirty one. Well, um, you write them the other way, right? Aluminium. Yeah, but the problem is there's no. <laughs> you guys oh god don't make me do number things i got a degree in libraries um (laughs) oh revenge tragedy that's what i was talking about so so hamlet is you know sort of riffing on that because like under the the sort of framework of the revenge tragedy you okay so his his 
father is like, my uncle killed me or your, my brother killed me, go kill your uncle. And you expect it much more quickly to set off this line of bloodshed. And instead of, you know, Titus Andronicus, who's like, you killed my sons, prepare to die. Um, and then like everyone does. Uh, mm. In Hamlet, you're like, uh, hmm. Hmm. Mm. Like you do have, it is a little bit subversive right. that you get all that waiting. Yeah. Um, everyone still does die at the end though. Except, except the hottest character, Roddy. You're very, you're very right. So <laughs> oh, Horatio? So Porting Bros would technically be like, if we're speaking in terms of like character quality, hotness, the way he's talked about throughout the play, easily the hottest guy okay. alive at the time. But Horatio is precious and he's a bean. So like, he, he gets his own sort of category, but like, you know, I look at every text now in terms of like, I'm so done with like the like deep dives into literature and things like that. I just am like, where are the himbos? Where are they? How do I identify them? And then I read the text, not just identifying, but see how important they are to the story. And that has just made life so much more fun for me now. Like, I don't Himbo's have cool. to think about it. Yeah, no, <laughs> Makes makes so, everything much yeah. easier, doesn't it? If you just spot himbos, yeah. But where's Wally? And it always what was he called in America? Waldo. Waldo. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and that's the joy of having done the work for your English degree, as Roddy and I have done, is that we've had our serious times, and now we simply do what we want. Yes. <laughs> Every time you all describe your class in the podcast, I'm like, oh, that would be so much fun. But at the point in my life where I am now, it would be so useless for that because I'm just like, where are the himbos at? And that's all I care about. Now, so. Every class starts with that. Ranks Every- the characters in terms of hotness. <laughs> the, students, the students you're teaching 10 years from now, they'll just be looking for himbos. That This is where they wind up. On a, on a, <laughs> so signifying nothing. Exactly. They're so Listening to me. In yeah. literature. I know it's cold comfort to find the himbo, but sometimes you just need that little ray of sunshine to just carry you through. Yeah. Also, y'all want to come do a PhD in himbos. <laughs> I'm asking. I would love to be Dr. Himbo, actually. <laughs> the thing is, I would love to from, be from time to time, my, from time to time, people do ask me, like, like people when I was in college were like, PhD in English and I was like <laughs> no I was too close to all of my professors I I told them that I was going to library school and they were a little bit relieved for me however if I was ever <laughs> not because of me because there are like no jobs Jeff right. um but like if I was ever gonna do a PhD I would go to Birmingham for a PhD in himbos <laughs> you should I mean hey we'll we'll be here Daniel did his half in French so his is in himbo with himbo an X at the end. I like that yeah, yeah. and I did I, I did I almost double majored in French I was like one class away from having it in a double major so oh no oh no I, I feel like we're not going to be able to top uh, Dr. Himbo. I feel like we should bring this beautiful episode to a close. Oh, it's Jeff, been... is this where you make us go back to the, our real jobs? We actually have to go back to work in the library, but we we have to be respectful of the time of our guests. Yes. And we really, really appreciate you both coming on the podcast with us. I hope this was at least entertaining, if not enlightening. <laughs> it was. I'm just sorry that you got me when I was sick, because I feel like I'm not bringing my A game to you, and I am... I'm... Oh, oh sorry. no, we'll have to have you back on the oh, podcast. Oh no, we'll have Whatever to have you back on the podcast. <laughs> um, yes, I would like to make this biannual, so please consider coming back to see us in December. Um, and we can do this. Yeah, all that's again. Like a, 
That's that seems weirdly arbitrary, but we'll be there. Is that okay, once every three years? I'm just <laughs> I'm just being like uh, modest. Like we'd have you back every week, so we want to like we don't want to be. So yeah, right, we will lives. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we could do the whole like what was the favorite book you read of the year kind of recap thing in December, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We could do Victorian himbos. <sighs> Victorian Himbos, stay tuned, folks. Mr. Guppy. Coming in five and a half months from now. Uh, I want t-shirts. Victorian Himbos. I want that t-shirt. Victorian Himbos? I will go design it right now. It should be like a band t-shirt with like the Himbos listed on the back of it as though they were tour stops. Yes. I actually have a version of that from uh, Thucydides where it's Xerxes, but all those cities in Greek that he stopped in and it's in like slasher style. So I can do that. Abby Daniel, Abby Daniel, anything you want to say to our, our listeners? This is a chance for you to to siphon some of our listeners and get them to listen to you. Any, any where, where can they find you? Anything? Any websites out there? Tell tell us about more about your show before we let you go. Okay, so we you can find our podcast Saving from My Shelf anywhere really that you can find podcasts. We're on Twitter at smfms underscore podcast, and we are on TikTok and Instagram at Save Me From My Shelf. And if any of you want to come study in Birmingham at Aston University, where we teach, uh, we will be very delighted to bring this chaotic himbo energy to you. It's mostly Daniel bringing the himbo. I'm very serious. Um, But yeah, uh, from Daniel and myself, thank you for having us. Yes, thanks a lot. It was great. Roddy, thanks for joining via Zoom. Thanks, y'all. Mary Graham, always a pleasure. Thank you. Real quick before we go, I have to say I uh, loved the debate about the pronunciation of my name on the pod when you read my email. And I loved it because my parents are from the southern U.S., so actually they say my name the British way. That's right. um, Two syllables on Graham uh, because of the draw. So there you go. But up here in Michigan, where I have been raised, it's a single syllable because our accent is as flat as the land. Very flat. We're in a hurry. We always we always just cram it all together. Mary Graham. Mary Graham. But I'm also named after an Australian. So the appropriate elongation seems correct. So. Uh, So in closing, Dr. Himbo hurts so good. Um, And uh, hopefully that paint you a picture pun landed. I don't know if it did. Uh, you have listened to another episode of A Little Too Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library podcast, and it's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. We thank John Duffy for giving us music to play at the beginning and end of each episode, and we especially, of course, thanks the friends of the Ferndale Library. Go to ferndalefriends.org if you want to support this podcast, but you could also rate, review, subscribe, and leave a positive review. Help us find more listeners, and go listen to Save Me From My Shelf. I cannot be held responsible for anything I do or say. You worried about passing it on through the... (laughs) (laughs) I'm not worried about transmitting it. I'm just worried I'm going to say something really loopy. No, but I'm worried about Daniel now. (laughs) You should always be worried. But you should just generally... (laughs)